Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Kirk Hansen. I'm a senior fellow at, Markle, at the Markala Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University, an emeritus faculty member at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, a member of the Commonwealth Club's Silicon Valley Advisory Board, and your moderator for today. As the club continues to host virtual events, we are grateful for the continued support of our members and donors. Visit www.commonwealthclub.org to learn more about membership or support the club right now with a tax-deductible gift by clicking the blue Donate button on your screen. It's my pleasure to welcome Ann Nelson, author of Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. As a journalist, Ann has covered conflicts abroad in El Salvador and Guatemala, won the Livingston Award for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and later director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. For the past 18 years, she has been teaching at Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs, where her work is focused on how digital media can support underserved populations worldwide through public health, education, and culture. Just a reminder, if you have a question for Anne, please submit those in the chat. Anne, welcome. And let me start off by asking you a basic question about your book. You um, uh, titled the book Shadow Network. Uh, is the network you describe surrounding the, the uh, uh, Center for National uh, Priorities, is it an active network that has a strategy, or is this an informal gathering of participants in the, the movement that we call the radical right? Well, Kirk, I would say that the Council for National Policy has formal meetings several times a year. They are, they are held in secret with a secretive list of members that has only recently been revealed by, by investigative reporters and others. And they take active part in strategizing to support each other's ways of leveraging their mission, which is to push the Republican Party to the right, to increase the influence of Christian fundamentalists and fossil fuel interests. And they were created in 1981 under the Reagan administration. And they have been working very uh, energetically at, at advancing the strategy for 40 years. You, you, uh, you mentioned that uh, the name in some ways was generic and I mangled it to start with. So my apologies. <laughs> <laughs> the Council on National uh, Policy is uh, the uh, organization. And perhaps the fact that we aren't as familiar with it is indicative of what you describe in the book, that it was basically uh, secretive and, and quiet during the time. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm interested, you, you describe at great length all of the different organizations which have been a part of the radical right movement. 
over the last 40 years. And in each case, you say they were represented on the CNP board. But I guess I continually thought, well, is does this mean that the CNP is in some way directing them? Or is it just that they meet there? So let me let me ask that again a little bit differently like that. So let me call them a coordinating body. Okay. And as I explained in Shadow Network, there are these different components. There are some who own large media platforms and some who are political strategists uh, from the, 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 the really the, the right wing of the Republican Party that you see right now uh, challenging people, even like Lynn Cheney, right? Uh, and, and purging Republicans like Jeff Flake because they're, they're not right-wing enough. And so they coordinate the media, a large donor base and a large and consistent and cooperative donor base that includes the DeVos family of Michigan, as in Betsy DeVos. It includes uh, people from, from the Texas and Oklahoma oil industries. And when you, and, and foundations such as the Templeton Foundation, uh, the Bradley Foundation of Wisconsin, and they fund each other's operations. So you've got millions of dollars strategically coordinated over 40 years combined with grassroots, what they call grassroots, but they're actually what we call AstroTurf organizations also run by members of the Council for National Policy, such as the National Rifle Association and the anti-abortion Susan B. Anthony list. So what that means is, let's say you have some messaging that you want to put out, which is for example, the falsehood that Democrats want to execute newborn babies. That's one of their, the, the falsehoods that they, they uh, like to perpetuate. And you have it going out on their radio stations. You have it going out on their digital media platforms. You have it integrated into speeches of politicians they support, such as Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. And then you have the grass, the, the, the canvassing volunteers going door to door armed with state of the art political data operations addressing swing voters in battleground states. So I would say that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Okay, let's, let's get to the origins of this uh, coordination. Uh, you make uh, considerable uh, uh, effort in the book to describe some of the evangelical origins and the, uh, what you described as almost a takeover of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, later the NRA. Uh, but uh, uh, did this begin with the evangelical movement or did this begin with right-wing media or did this begin with Republican radicals? How did this begin in your view? In my view, it goes back to the 1960s. And I'm from Oklahoma, you're from Texas. So we all know about the radio preachers. Mm -hmm. And you have people like Billy James Hargis doing their very profitable televent you know, radio evangelism that became televangelism. And Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, when you had integration of the schools, you had pushback among these groups. They were from the South, they were not in favor of integration. Mm -hmm. And they created what they called Christian academies and others called them segregation academies. Well, under the Nixon administration, the IRS decided they could not be tax exempt if they were segregated. And they re realized that in order to perpetuate their segregated model, 
they needed to have more political clout in Washington. And so these, these evangelists uh, who made vast amounts of money, right, from their, their broadcast operations and their schools got together and formed this organization really to, to leverage their lobbying ability and their mm -hmm. political footprint. And, and so the evangelicals organized and uh, at what point did they begin to run into more traditional political activists or the media activists that you describe who created these media empires of uh, hundreds of stations that uh, uh, were engaged in talk radio? Well, that was one of the interesting things about the research because you've got a political operative named Richard Vigory, who is very familiar to people who study political history in Washington. He basically invented direct mail as, as a political instrument uh, during and after the Goldwater campaign. And guess what? One of his first jobs was working for Billy James Hargis. And so he, he kind of wedded his expertise in direct mail and his experience with the Goldwater campaign and his experience with the televangelists. And he joined forces with two other Southerners uh, or, or well, Martin Blackwell, who was a, a, a person who networked a lot on the Hill and then Paul Weirich, who is not a Southerner, but he was a fundamentalist, very, very conservative Christian, who was a grand architect. And the three of them were the founding fathers of the Council for National Policy and, and mm -hmm. kind of designed this grand vision that's extraordinary. Because when you read Weirich's architectural vision, he says, our problem is that the liberals have taken over education and entertainment and other things, and they want to, to change the traditional family. You know, a, a, a man, a woman, and their two kids and their dog, um, and turn it into other forms. And so we have to roll back against all of these social institutions, education, entertainment, government, family. We have to take the whole thing back. And that's why the media has been such a, a very important component of their plan. And this, this traditionalist view that you describe as being at the, the heart of this and the, the origins of it, uh, was it just segregation? What were the other elements that, that uh, gave energy to this movement as it began to coalesce? Well, I should say that I see it as driven by economic interests. Okay. So I, I see evangelicals and fundamentalists as being badly used by this movement because it's finding ways to get them to vote against their own self-interest, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you want clean water for your children to drink and you want public schools for them to attend, they devise political, uh, misleading political campaigns, such as mm -hmm. Democrats like to execute babies. And of course, who's going to vote for executing babies, right? I mean, I'm against it. Um, and they flood the zone with this misinformation. They also work heavily through churches. So they have recruited, they say, tens of thousands of pastors, and they put their voting guides in the sanctuaries of the churches, inserted into the church bulletin. And every Republican is against the homosexual agenda, and every Democrat is in favor of what they call the homosexual agenda. So certainly virulent anti-LGBTQ 
policies that are have been leveraged in a number of states now that that are depriving our citizens of their civil and political rights. It's 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 a scandal. They also are strongly Islamophobic and some of their leadership has gone on record. You can find them saying that Muslims should not be protected by the constitution because Islam is not a religion. Mm -hmm. And they use this hate mongering in order to stir up emotions. What's so tactically clever about it is that they're very good at targeting districts and battleground states. So if they lose the popular election, which they consistently do nationally, they can still exert their leverage in the Senate, as we have seen, and in the Electoral College, which we've also seen. So it's, it's really a matter of, of some very astute tactical operations. If, if the motivating issues today tend to be abortion, uh, traditional families, uh, anti-LGBTQ, um, is, is the radical right bordering on white supremacy movement? Is it related, one of our viewers has asked, to QAnon? Uh, uh, what, what's your sense of either the radical right as a movement or CNP as an organization? Is it related to those most extreme forms? Well, you do have some overlap. And I wrote, in the paperback of my uh, book, I've got an update on the January 6th insurrection where you have Michael Flynn working in concert with the Council for National Policy in order to support Donald Trump's bid to steal, (laughs) that's the word, steal the election. And at the same time, Michael Flynn had become a very vocal representative of QAnon. And you also have QAnon elements that are now very actively uh, infiltrating Protestant churches, evangelical churches, to the point where pastors are, are really panicking because there are a number of pastors who say to their flock that, that they're believing these conspiracy theories and they're not believing what, what they hear in church. So again, living in New York, living in San Francisco, you wouldn't probably hear about this. In Oklahoma, Missouri, Texas, Arkansas, you definitely would. And and where it becomes, where they're really focusing right now, obviously, is on swing states like Arizona, uh, Florida, North Carolina, where really uh, the future of our country is going to be determined. You, you made reference to being from Oklahoma. Does that motivate your interest in this topic, the origins of this group in, in the South and in Southern uh, evangelical work? Uh, and does it, does it uh, somehow influence your perspective in this book, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, when I, uh, to, to my knowledge, I was the first female to graduate from Yale College. And when I went to Yale, Fred Harris was our Senator we had Democrats and Republicans who had a healthy debate about policy. Mm-hmm. And since then, Oklahoma has turned not only into one of the reddest states in the country, but we've also promoted state representatives such as Scott Pruitt to a national level. Well, what are they about? He was all about representing the fossil fuels interests at the expense of the citizens and the taxpayers. So. 
under those Republicans administrations, the oil companies taxes were plummeted and their profits rose and the public schools fell apart, the infrastructure fell apart, the, the everyday citizens really paid a terrible price. And that, that is really painful to watch. Oklahoma has some very bad social statistics in terms of public health, infant mortality, you name it. Uh, all so the oil companies could benefit. And what they're trying to do is leverage that to a national platform that involves minority rule. If they control Congress, if they control the Electoral College, then the popular vote really counts for next to nothing. That's how our system works until we change it. And they have figured out how to exploit those characteristics. Let's, let's talk more about your observation about the evangelicals, that there are some pastors who um, really think things have gone too far and the misinformation is, uh, uh, is, out, of, uh, is out of step. How, how do the evangelicals deal with that at this point, or have they lost the battle in your view? Uh, and how do they deal with um, the next generation of evangelicals, the younger ones who may not be as quick to adopt the misinformation? It's really a race against time because the number of Protestants and, and really religiously observant people in the United States is steadily declining. And the Southern Baptists have declined more slowly than the mainline Protestants like Methodists and Presbyterians, but they're still declining. So there is this race to seize power uh, through the levers they can access while they still can. Uh, now, in terms of how pastors have responded, there was a lot of, there, there was pushback against Hillary Clinton as a candidate. Uh, some of it was based on fact, a lot of it was not based on fact. Uh, these communities through these media platforms were saturated with things like she ran child sex trafficking rings and all kinds of you know, bizarre claims that, that made it into these communities. Another point that I make in my book is that this is a period, these last 20 years, when local newspapers have been dying off at a terrible rate. So one in five American newspapers has closed over the last 20 years. That leaves a vacuum in these communities where they don't have trusted local sources that are publishing the Associated Press and other, other news organizations. And instead, they get these radio stations and these fake news organizations that are pumping out this misinformation. So you really have large populations in the middle of the country who've been abandoned by, by professional journalism and the business model that has fallen apart for journalism. And this is, this is the very uh, unfortunate result that's, that's grown up in the vacuum. Is your argument that this shadow network and its success is because uh, the Democratic Party and the liberal, uh, those who are more liberal have uh, not been as active, have, have missed a beat, and now need to adopt some of the techniques of, of this shadow network that you describe? Is that your basic argument? Well, I certainly have my criticisms of how Democrats have dealt with the last, I, I think they've been very focused on the coastal and urban populations where most of their mm -hmm. support is. What does that mean? Well, for example, Democratic uh, cases and policies are almost absent on radio 
for example, whereas these other outlets push the radical right Republican line, uh, you know, uniquely. So Democrats made a brief attempt with Air America some years ago and then abandoned it and said, oh, well, we're not, radio isn't important. There are a lot of states in this country where people spend time in cars and they put, turn the radio on. It is a medium that has a lot of power. And so why did the Democrats abandon it? I, I don't know, but it was ill-advised. The other aspect which might be interesting for your audience is that the Koch brothers who are allies of this movement developed uh, the most sophisticated political data platform and put it to the service of the candidates who got, received the blessing of this movement called I360. And it mm. combines consumer data with political data. And it's, it's linked into a feedback loop with political canvassing apps. And the Democrats have not done that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm unclear about why not. Because if you wanna say it's not good to use data, uh, well, every other aspect of our life does it. And to have one political party that uses it effectively and the other party not really looping it into canvassing at all is uh, hard for me to understand. So I think that the other part of it is that what, what this radical right organization understands is the importance of the hyper-local. So for example, I've been looking at the Rio Grande Valley as a case study. Mm -hmm. And it has been traditionally Hispanic, traditionally Democratic. There's been a real erosion of Hispanic votes, not just in Florida, but Rio Grande Valley and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the messaging, uh, this movement tends to understand that the concerns of people in the Rio Grande Valley often invo involve the border. Whereas the Democrats send more generic Hispanic messaging across their platforms. And what you know from reporting on these areas is that there's no such thing as a generic Hispanic, right? Mm -hmm. A Cuban in Florida and a Mexican in LA, you know, they're, they're not the same, same animal. Mm -hmm. And let me, let me explore why the Koch brothers got involved and have been so instrumental to this movement. You talk a lot about the marriage of this evangelical and conservative Republican wing with these moneyed interests. Is it that they seek very conservative capitalism and a release from all regulation? Uh, what is it that attracted not just the Koch brothers, but uh, the DeVos family, the Prince family, and the others that you write about? Well, after studying them for a few years, I came to the conclusion that they don't think they should have to pay taxes. Paying taxes is for the little people. Quoting uh, uh, Helmsley, I believe. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and they also don't think they should be regulated. Uh, and, and I think that there's a fair argument to be made about you know, regulation. It's, it, you know, sometimes there is excessive regulation, but they specifically resent environmental regulation, workplace safety regulation, mm -hmm. uh, some of the DeVos families, Amway Empire has had very questionable business practices that have been fined and, and called out by different governments. 
And so they would like to be immune from those nuisances. And hey, wouldn't everybody? But they have the clout. The DeVosses spent millions of dollars to undermine the labor unions in Michigan in order to create a more favorable environment for their Republican candidates. And the same thing with the Koch brothers nationally. When they get one of their, their minions into office, they vote in order to support their brand of, of unfettered capitalism and it benefits them. I mean, it's actually a good investment on their part. A small investment in a campaign can result in millions of dollars of profit. So uh, have they simply outdistanced uh, more liberal business people uh, and others who uh, might have organized a shadow network on the left? Have they, um, uh, have the Koch brothers and others been willing to invest many more millions than liberals and, and moderates have? And is that why they have so much influence? I, I think there are several uh, ways to look at that. One is that the Democrats have been very invested in the idea of the future. And as an individual, I buy the idea that the future involves families of every possible combination and color. And as long as they're, they're happy and, 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 and you know, productive families, I don't care who's in it. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the country, these districts that they target, people may not have caught up with that. And when, when they have this messaging that becomes so distorted, so for example, defund the police, right? The way that is heard in rural Nebraska is these crazy people don't think there should be any police to protect us from robbers. Mm -hmm. We better vote against them, right? There, there's just this whole set of mantras that misrepresent actual democratic policies, but the Democrats are not addressing them because they're so busy addressing their urban constituencies with messages that, that can be twisted to sound like they promote them. Mm -hmm. right. they, um, in your book, the coming of Donald Trump represents a, in some ways a real crisis for this radical right uh, and its institutions. The Koch brothers never have reconciled with, uh, with Donald Trump. Um, but certainly the evangelical leaders had many questions when he first presented himself. Um, uh, why did Trump succeed in getting them on board and being supportive and now you know, apparently even more so supporting his argument of a stolen election? How did that happen? Well, the Council for National Policy has has invited presidential candidates for many election cycles to come to a kind of beauty contest. And they, they actually hold straw polls on them. Their clear favorites in 2016 were number one, Ted Cruz, who is mm -hmm. really one of them. And number two would be Marco Rubio. Mm -hmm. Well, lo and behold, Donald Trump won the primaries, but he won it as a weak candidate. He did not have a war chest, so he didn't have the financing for, for the national campaign. He didn't have a ground game. He didn't have volunteers nationally. Um, and so they had a moment of crisis where they said, well, we either lose and get Hillary Clinton or we go with Trump, but we'll try to cut a deal. And they did. And they, they presented a shopping list. And I think 
the, the item on the list to Donald Trump that affects us the most was a list of judges to be nominated to the federal courts that was compiled by three key organizations from the Council for National Policy, the Federalist Society, the Heritage Foundation, and the National Rifle Association. Mm -hmm. Now, as a citizen, I say, what should the National Rifle Association have to do with the nomination of federal judges? I don't see that. Uh, why wouldn't they listen to the Bar Association instead? But this was the quid pro quo. And it also involved letting the president of the Council for National Policy write some of the social platforms for the Republican National Committee. So there's all of this homophobic material that suddenly appears in 2016. Trump didn't care. Trump didn't have any policies. He opened the door and they said, if, he said, if you help me win, you can have your way with the policies that you care about. And that's exactly what happened, both on the economic front with tax policy and on the social front with policies like banning trans people from military service, which the Pentagon didn't want. But that was their idea and Trump implemented it according to his bargain. The tax policy was a meeting apparently of their interests, both Trump's and uh, the radical right uh, at the time. Uh, Absolutely. Interesting. You also make the point that Hillary Clinton was almost uniquely abhorrent to this network or to this radical right perspective. Why was that? I think it was for several reasons. Um, first of all, they had a lot of issues with Bill Clinton and she was, somehow they painted her as being enabling of mm -hmm. her husband's uh, misbehavior. But, uh, you know, there's also, it's, I was a student of religious history in college and it's something that, that I thought about a lot in writing this book. And Hillary Clinton was the real deal. She grew up Methodist. She remained a churchgoer. Her faith was, was genuinely important to her. And she saw it in the context of, of the social uh, tradition of Christianity, where the belief was that you should help the poor and the sick. And she tried to translate those beliefs into her policy platforms. And this, this evangelical, fundamentalist, and Pentecostal approach to religion is, is quite different. It's much more the idea that I have been chosen to be saved, we are saved, they are not saved, um, and, and somehow believing that they've got a direct line of God to God that, that, that argues that they should have dominion over everyone else. So it's theologically a very different approach to the concept of Christianity. Let's, um, let's talk, bring it up to today. Um, uh, you, you make a point that the evangelical roots and domination early in the CNP's history has given way to more business types leading uh, the CNP. Um, is that a permanent shift? Is this basically a conservative capitalist uh, uh, driven movement at this point, or will the evangelicals continue to be a, an important influence in it? I don't see a bright line between them. 
I think the business people in the CNP see themselves as, as evangelical or even fundamentalist or even dominionist, this idea mm-hmm. they should have dominion over the rest of us. And certainly the evangelical and fundamentalist figures like Tony Perkins, the past president from the Family Research Council, uh, he's an ordained Southern Baptist pastor, but he's also very much a free market extremist and somebody who has a lot of passion for for the oil industries. So I, I think... You know, for people from Texas and Oklahoma, when you say fundamentalists and, and, and fossil fuels, you recognize that in real life, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. It's just the culture that, that is dominant. And I also believe that there's this philosophical idea that dominion is not just over other Americans, it's also over the earth. So fossil fuels, means you have your way with the environment regardless of how destructive it is because God tells man to exploit the earth. To have dominion dominion over the earth. That's right, and all of the creatures in it. So when environmentalists come along and say, no, we should be partners with nature, we should be protective of nature, Uh, we should, you know, fossil fuels are not good for climate, they see that as a threat, a a, a fundamental threat to their entire way of life. And of course it is a threat to the economy. And until we can offer Texas and Oklahoma and Louisiana as new new approaches to creating their economies and providing jobs and, and transitioning, it's going to be a very threatening view to them. And they've got enough money and power to really push their interests at this moment. Let me just remind, we're at the halfway point, I want to remind our listeners that we're talking with Ann Nelson, who's the author of Shadow Networks, uh, which is subtitled Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Uh, And uh, we're delighted to have Ann Ann with us today. Um, I I guess the question now is looking beyond the, the, the period covered by your book, uh, your book was originally published in 2019 and then updated in the last couple of months with a new concluding chapter that uh, brings us up through January 6th and the attack on the Capitol. And now uh, you've even expanded that further. I, I read your piece, uh, which was in the Washington Spectator, which uh, is a much more thorough uh, addressing of the, the aftermath of uh, the election. Uh, did CNP and the radical right get involved in the challenging of the election and the argument that the election was stolen uh, and support for Trump? Is, is that a feature of where CNP and the radical right is now? Oh, absolutely. They were intrinsically involved. And, and after I published my book, researchers published videos of the internal meetings of the Council for National Policy where at the end of 2019, they were already creating a set of strategies to challenge the election, depending on the outcome. So of course they hoped they won the popular vote, but they realized they may not. So then they were looking for ways to to make sure they won the electoral college. But if they didn't win that, they had plan C, which was to pressure the state legislators 
to overturn the results of their own electors. And when Plan C failed, one of their leading members, Cleta Mitchell, got on the phone with, with Brad Raffensperger and the Trump-Raffensperger call that infamously asked Georgia to come up with 11,000 votes for Trump out of nowhere. So she was advising Trump on that call. Um, and then when that failed, you had members of the Council for National Policy, such as Charlie Kirk from Turning Point USA, and another member, uh, Ginny Thomas, the wife of Cla Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, going on social media, uh, organizing people to come to the protest on January 6th. So they were involved every step of the way. Anybody who doubted my thesis in the book need only look to January 6th, where they're, they're coming out in public and making their actions known. So... Bringing it up to the actual moment now, they're very focused on the 2022 midterms. Biden appears to be president and they don't seem to have found a way to change that. However, if they focus on the right electoral districts in the right states, the swing states, and gain five seats net in the House of Representatives, they'll control it. And so they're going after a number of districts, putting a lot of effort into it. Uh, and if the Democrats don't turn out to vote and they win it, uh, and especially if they win back another seat in the Senate, they will be able to paralyze the Biden administration. There will be no budget, there'll be no confirmations, there'll be total gridlock. And then they can say, oh, see, Biden is ineffective, right? Mm -hmm. So I believe that that's where they're focused right now. And they've got a number, uh, I, can't, I can't remember, but it's over 30 states where they're pushing voter suppression legislation in Republican state legislatures. Let me, let me come back. I asked you at the beginning, is this an informal movement of a lot of different forces or is this CNP coordinating and controlling? And when you say they're, they're out working for voter suppression laws and so on. Is that CNP? Is that a variety of interests that happen to also serve on CNP? Well, they've got some 400 members. Okay. And a lot of them are people who are influential in their home states in ways that people in New York and San Francisco have never heard of. Mm -hmm. And so... For example, one of the organizations uh, involved is ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, mm -hmm. which is headed by a member of the Council for National Policy. What they do is work in consultation with corporations and draft sample legislation, and then they will choose states where they're likely to have the courts in their favor. And I'm afraid Oklahoma is one, Tennessee is another. They'll test that legislation and then they'll have a precedent, a legal precedent for it passing in the state legislature and then they'll leverage it across state lines. So mm -hmm. Oklahoma has been pretty, pretty extreme in that regard. Uh, the governor just signed a bill saying that if a motorist runs over a protester, he's not necessarily gonna be prosecuted, mm -hmm. right? That's in response to Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, 
uh, but some of the voter suppression efforts just make it harder for uh, people of color to vote, people without resources to vote, just raising the bar in, in many ways and hoping that they can boost their own uh, members of, of their electorate, including through these church recruitment measures and suppress the other side's vote. It's classic. Is, is there as much emphasis on abortion and anti-LGBTQ at this point, uh, uh, same-sex marriage? Uh, or is this more about raw political control at this point? Well, the way you get people, a lot of their voters are not highly educated and the scare tactics are very prevalent. So right now, if you, if you follow their media the way I do, you'd know that there are just so many trans female athletes flooding our high schools that no girl will ever win a track meet again, right? And, and it's just, just blanketing their media, this, this incredible threat to girls' sports. And of course, if you're an actual reporter and you look for an example of this, you might find one somewhere but it is not a common phenomenon. It is invented as a scare tactic. And, uh, and it's the same thing with what they're doing with abortion. Uh, they're claiming that the Democrats advocate late-term abortion. This is not true. They claim that Democrats, as I said, want to execute newborn babies. This is not true. And the, for me, the sad thing as a citizen is that if you actually talk to people that support them, in a lot of cases, there's common ground, right? That, that, that first trimester abortion in a lot of cases should be allowed. And third trimester, not allowed except in extreme medical emergencies. We, we, you know, Americans, in terms of the polling, agree more than they disagree which is why the political messaging and the emotions they inflame are, are, are so damaging. Mm -hmm. You make a point that the CNP is, is today getting more transparent. It's talking more about itself. It's uh, uh, talking, I guess, to the press, uh, national press more. Why is that? Why is it more willing to go public uh, than it has been in the past? Well, uh, in part, they were outed. And there was one researcher named Brent Allpress who found that he could access their website um, because their online security was quite poor. And so he could, just, he could just access it. And he published a lot of their membership lists and videos of their meetings um, and their agendas. Then the next thing that happened was that in the final year of the Trump administration, they kept taking victory laps. They had strategized to get Amy Coney Barrett nominated to the Supreme Court for years. And when that happened, they showed up at the Rose Garden event that mm -hmm. Trump held in her honor. And in fact, I did a count and there were more Council for National Policy members there than there were members of Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was really their celebration. And then it turned out that on the eve of the Republican convention, the big flagship speech that Trump gave was for the Council for National Policy, which mm -hmm. was covered by the national media. 
Now, what's ironic is that the newspaper said a conservative organization called the Council for National Policy and neglected all of the ways that their networked organizations had brought Trump to power and benefited from his policy decisions. So uh, one of the members of our audience has asked the question, what do we expect going forward from CNP? And one dimension of that I'm wondering about is, uh, will they have any tolerance for moderate Republicans or are, is that going to be one of their top priorities to weed out anyone who might uh, be moderate? And are they gonna have any interest in negotiating with the Democrats on any of these uh, national priorities? No moderates and their goal is to foil the Democrats at every pass. And something that's really even shocked me is how much COVID misinformation they've been pumping out. So in order to promote Donald Trump's campaign during the shutdown, they, they widely promoted the hydroxychloroquine hoax, that it was a cure for COVID, which it was not. And uh, they've also been, some of their platforms are promoting vaccine criticisms uh, and, and promoting vaccine hesitancy, which is a real public health tragedy. Mm -hmm. um, so... In terms of moderate Republicans, they lined up against Lynn Cheney. Anybody who criticized Trump or January 6th was, was marginalized. A couple of people like Adam Kinzinger have kind of stood up to their, their operations. He's, he's, a, he's been a conservative congressman, but he just says that he doesn't approve of their methods. Uh, I think that they will not be be wanting Mitt Romney to continue and they'll probably have issues with Ben Sass. Uh, mm -hmm. And we've seen them purge many, many members of Congress who will not fall into line. In terms of the Democrats, even saving lives from COVID appear to be policies that they've been reluctant to support. So forget infrastructure, forget education bills, and, and all of these other social programs. I, I expect them to oppose them at every step. Um, have, have the Republican money sources, the radical Republican money sources been matched any more, to any greater extent by Democrats, whether it's George Soros or Tom Steyer or others? Uh, is, is this a more balanced fight today than it's been in the past? The irony I see is that the Democrats have done more fundraising than the Republicans, but they've been less strategic in applying it. And you see that in so many ways. So many of the campaigns that the Democrats have run have involved big television spends. And what we've learned uh, through looking at data analytics and polling and many other things is that, you know, television ads are very expensive, but they're very generalized. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you know, maybe, you know, these close races in Michigan and Wisconsin uh, may have a differential of 10 to 40,000 votes mm -hmm. in the whole state, right? And maybe your television ad doesn't speak to those 40,000 people who are going to make the difference. So that's why they're targeting on social media platforms and their use of churches as, mm -hmm. as, instrumentalizing them politically is so effective. 
and also their hyper local focus, right? Mm-hmm. Not not spreading the big generic message nationally, but saying, all right, how do we speak to people in this district and win the forty thousand votes we need to get? And hence the power of the databases, which oh, allow yeah. you to identify and reach those people. But one other topic I I thought. Uh, uh, Beg the question of what's happening in the future is social media. Mm. And uh, I wondered who you think has the upper hand on the use of social media. Certainly with Trump's being banned by uh, Facebook, uh, that voice has been quieted a bit. Uh, But uh, are the Democrats able to compete on social media with uh, the radical right? Well, again, in a generic national sense, the Democrats have the upper hand and they won the popular vote by Mm -hmm. 7 million. But if you're looking at these slices of votes in battleground states where it's Mm -hmm. 10,000 here, 20,000 there in places that like North Carolina, where, you know, people in New York don't think a lot about North Carolina, Mm -hmm. they may have a disadvantage. So uh, the other aspect that's in motion right at this moment is that Trump has been banned from Twitter for now, unclear what the future will be. So this movement has been developing different social media platforms. Mm -hmm. And there's one called Gab, which is run by someone who actually, it was founded by a man who thinks that the country may need to split into two different countries. One of them he calls Jesus land. (laughs) So that's Gab and it's got some support. Uh, There's another that's in development called Find. And Trump has has announced on their media platforms that he's going to be doing campaign rallies in June and that he will announce his political social media platform of choice on July 4th. So all of this is in development. We know that Brad Parscale is involved. And I believe that what will emerge is this platform that is dominated by Trump and by their political messaging. And once you're in that, in that media sphere, you will hear no, no information to the contrary, right? So did Trump take over the radical right or did the radical right take over Trump. It's a marriage of convenience Mm -hmm. uh, and they need each other. It's symbiotic and I I don't know that either of them could triumph without the other. Um, But I also, you know, Trump Trump is hard to manage. He's hard to wrangle. And one of the problems they have is that they have candidates on a state level where he won't necessarily support their candidates because he's only about loyalty to himself, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, I guess as a reporter, I think it's, it's gonna be a, a, a fascinating and hair-raising year that we have because 2022, the midterms are so, so important. And there's so many elements at play. Um, write the scenario for us. What are things going to be like in 2022? Uh, if it's a major battle, given this historical analysis that you've done, do you see the radical right movement building, therefore 
successful in 2022? Do you see it uh, uh, declining or or uh, uh, becoming more static? What's what's your prediction based upon your historical understanding of this? The the gut sense I get from looking at their media is that they're they're an animal backed into a corner. And so there's gonna be a great deal of energy um, that they apply because by the same token, if they lose, if the radical right loses Congress in 2022, then there are all kinds of reforms that might be possible. You know, we, we, we need some kind of, uh, you know, we, we, we need to clean up the way that social media works in politics. There's too much misinformation floating around and hurting people. And it, it just needs a little tidying up. And it's not going to happen in the next year. It can't happen that fast, but, but it could happen in the next three years. We need campaign re finance reform. There's way too much dark money on all sides floating around. Um, so they know that there's a tremendous amount at stake. Uh, and for me, the biggest question is whether the Democrats will be able to focus on putting early resources, early training into these battleground districts and, and states they often neglect. The other characteristic they have is that they wait till the last minute. And you know, like Georgia in January, the last two weeks, everybody goes to Georgia. <laughs> What's been so effective for the radical right is that they've cultivated voices from the communities and trusted voices and then leveraged them like, like their church networks, et cetera, over time. And they've used them to, to really hide all of the issues that bear on people's daily lives, like do your kids have a school and do you have clean water and put single issues in front of them like executing newborn babies, mm -hmm. right? So, so they really get their, their constituents very confused about what's at stake and very emotional. Mm -hmm. uh, so the opportunity the Democrats would have is that there are increasing divisions. There are major leaders within even the Southern Baptist Convention who are very uncomfortable with where this has gone. You know, invading the Capitol and killing a policeman is not what they had in mind. And some of them are parting ways and others are agonizing. Um, but, but on the other hand, the Democratic Party nationally has moved to the left of potential Democrats in these Midwestern and Southern states. And they would have to kind of restore the language of the center, right? And say, okay, we, we we're gonna pay attention to your bread and butter issues and listen to you and be able to speak to you in your language mm -hmm. um, and not just pretend that everybody should live in Brooklyn and be a hipster. <laughs> Let me get a couple questions in from our audience. There's interest, if you're a relig interested in religious history, is there any hope liberal Christianity or liberal uh, religion will uh, assert itself as a balance to evangelicalism? Well. I mean, there, there's some marvelous leaders uh, from the liberal Christian community, but it tends to be mutually reinforcing with people who are liberal in other ways. So it's not really changing any votes. 
And so in terms of what's going to affect the upcoming elections, I think it's going to be the soft center. So you're talking about conservative Democrats, and they might be these Main Street Methodists and Presbyterians, and they may be voted for Nixon. They may be some Republicans who don't feel comfortable with all of these things, you know, like invading the Capitol and making them feel that there's there's a place for them. Right. Make make them feel that, that they're they're heard and represented. Um, and and again, one of the issues is finding the media streams that actually reach them. Mm-hmm. Right. Because their their hometown paper may not be there anymore. Uh, so I think that the use of data, uh, whether it's, you know, this, this, this combined platform that the Koch brothers have, have used, um, to figure out who these people are, and then really some, some, some hyper-local approach that says, okay, what, what are they worried about this morning? Now that's, that's what politics used to be about. (laughs) And it's just a truism that people here in Oklahoma City aren't going to be worried about the same thing as they are in New York. And I think also what I'd love to see is getting away from this emphasis on the language of Christian nationalism and white superiority. I understand the technical terms. But let's say that you're a centrist Presbyterian and you call yourself a Christian, but all of a sudden people are acting like they're calling you names by saying Christian. So you're alienating potential voters instead of, of engaging them. And you know, here in the Southwest, you know, you, in, on a high school, you've got a white football coach and he's got a lot of African-American players and he mentors them and he supports them. And all of a sudden he finds himself being called a white nationalist for reasons that he doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, I, I would love to see citizens try to look for ways to support each other and say, look, we have common interests in mm-hmm. you know, the environment and education and infrastructure. How do we advance each other rather than being divisive? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a question. What surprised you? You've done a lot of research and, and you've identified dozens, if not hundreds, of organizations that have been active uh, on the the radical right. Uh, was there anything that just really shocked you, given what was presumably a familiarity with the territory when you went into it? Two things, and it's a great question, thank you. Uh, Number one, how many of these people came from Oklahoma? It (laughs) blew me away, because Oklahoma, you know, is not that big a state, what, three to four million people. And yet, time and time again, uh, they they were from Oklahoma, they worked in Oklahoma, and uh, I'm still not sure I can entirely explain how prevalent it is. Tony Perkins, Cleta Mitchell, Richard Vigory all have Oklahoma connections. So that was one. The second involves sexual politics. Uh, I begin the book talking about the way that two Southern Baptists took over the Southern Baptist Convention, and that became the pilot project for purging moderates and installing extremists and and just just 
using a few dirty tricks along the way to take something over. And then that was replicated with the Republican Party, purge the moderates and bring in extremists. Um, and, and along with this was an intensely homophobic agenda that was just basically punitive. And, and you still see it in so many ways now where you have laws being passed that are about denial of service. So uh, ostensibly, if you're a doctor who is a fundamentalist and doesn't believe homosexuality exists uh, or that trans people are evil, you don't have to treat them medically. A social worker doesn't have to provide services based on their religion. And, and that just strikes me as downright wrong. You don't deny service of a professional to anybody based on any of these criteria, but you scratch the surface and a relatively large number of the people I profile turn out to be gay pedophiles who make a career persecuting gay people. And that boggled my mind. I have to ask you the last question. We're running out of time. And it is, um, as someone from Oklahoma, the, the flyover territory, what do you hope the coastal elites know? Give us one or two things that you hope uh, they will understand, and this probably addresses both media and democratic politics. But what is it that uh, is important for us as a nation to know about the Midlands uh, to uh, to build toward the future? Sure, that's that's also great. Um, okay, number one, don't think that just because people speak with a southwestern accent, they're stupid. There are just brilliant people who have had all kinds of inventions and solved all kinds of problems. Culturally, they may be in a different place. There's a kind of cultural time warp, but it's not a matter of intelligence. I think more than anything else, it's a matter of information systems and ways that we as a nation have gotten lazy in connecting ourselves through media and journalism and information. So that's number one. And number two is that race is way more complicated than people think. Uh, I've lived in New York City on the Upper West Side for 40 years. It's a very liberal area of the country. And yet we have a lot of de facto segregation that we have not managed to solve. It's, it's just part of our social fabric. And people wrestle with it, but it's very, it's, it's economically and socially entrenched. However, one of the most integrated spaces I've gone to anywhere is an Oklahoma megachurch. And you see all the races together in the megachurch in you know, very even proportions, getting along and, and experiencing fellowship. And so I feel like there's a lot of oversimplification of Southwestern culture where people haven't had those experiences and they make assumptions that may not be the case. Anne, thank you. And our thanks go to Ann Nelson, who's the author of Shadow Network, Media Money, and The Secret Hub of the Radical Right. We encourage you to pick up a copy of Ann's book, now with new 
uh, final chapter uh, at your local bookstore or online. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Kirk Hansen. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.